The Met premiered Zalame in 1907 with one single performance before the remainder of the run was canceled due to public outrage. On this episode, a look beyond the Dance of the Seven Veils in Strauss's Zalame. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. To learn more, visit metguild.org. I'm Kyle Homewood. The biblical character of Zalame, Princess of Judea, enjoyed great popularity in the late 19th century, an era of symbolism in art, music, and literature. Zalame is on stage at the Met through December 28th, starring Patricia Reset in the title role. In this episode, Naomi Baratera discusses the impact of this beautiful and dangerous femme fatale in Richard Strauss's operatic adaptation of Oscar Wilde's scandalous play. The date is January 22, 1907. Audiences at the Metropolitan Opera have just come back from intermission, having enjoyed a concert program for the first half of the evening, featuring singers such as Enrico Caruso, Geraldine Ferrar, and Antonio Scotti, performing a wide array of opera excerpts, including La Cidarem La Mano from Don Giovanni, Belle Nuit from Le Conte Hoffman, and O Paradiso from La Fracan. The second half of the program features a United States premiere of a new opera that has experienced a considerable amount of success in Europe, Richard Strauss's Zalame. The time is 9.45 p.m., and the curtain rises to a set that looks to be a courtyard of a palace with high steps leading to a palace door on the left side of the stage, a cistern in the middle of the stage placed in front of a small trellis of roses, large cedar trees in the background, all set against a black night sky. According to the reviews, by the time the curtain closed, the audience was in complete shock and horror. A review in the New York Tribune described the audience reaction in this way. Quote, Many faces were white, almost as those at the rail of a ship. Many women were silent, and men spoke as if a bad dream were on them. The preceding concert was forgotten, Ordinary emotions following an opera were banished. A grip of a strange horror or disgust was on the majority. It was as significant that the usual applause was lacking. It was scattered and brief. Its final horror left the listeners staring at each other with startling eyeballs and wrecked nerves. End quote. The daughter of John Pierpont Morgan was one of the individuals in the audience gripped by horror and disgust, and in fact, she was so appalled by the work that through her father's influence and connections, she successfully got all further scheduled performances of the opera to be cancelled, and the opera was banned from the Met stage. Zalame had its premiere performance, and then it was never performed at the Met again until 1934. The North American premiere of Zalame was not the first time this opera had caused a stir. Its world premiere had only been two years earlier, in December of 1905, at the Hofoper in Dresden, Germany, and although the critics had called it an abomination, it was actually a wildly successful in box office sales. Less than a year after its world premiere, the opera had its Austrian premiere in Graz, and several prominent people came to see the opera that had created so much buzz, including Gustav Mahler and his wife, Alma, Giacomo Puccini, Arnold Schoenberg, and several of his students, 
And allegedly, although this is contested, some say that in that same audience was a 17-year-old Adolf Hitler. Everyone wanted to experience this groundbreaking and scandalous work with a score described as decadent and volatile and a plot that one critic called, quote, a moral stench in the nostrils of humanity, end quote. Given the fact that Zalame has been a controversial opera from the very beginning of its existence, it is impossible to find anything written about the work without being confronted with issues of morality and sexuality and bombarded by words such as depravity, sensuality, misogyny, and seduction. And yet, despite the discourse of shock that surrounds it, this opera is incredibly popular, and it is considered to be one of the most important operas of the early 20th century, dramatically altering the direction of musical style and aesthetics of the time. So how do we begin to dig deeper into such a controversial work? And if we share some of the discomfort and horror with the work that earlier audiences did, what do we need to understand in order to move past that initial shock and experience this 90-minute work as a provocative piece of history that challenges us on an intellectual level, presenting themes, issues, and questions that are still applicable for us today? In my own experience with the opera, which began about 8 or 10 years ago, I was initially shocked by what I heard and saw, I was uncomfortable with the subject matter, and I wasn't quite sure what to think of it. But over time, I have come back to this opera again and again, both as an audience member and as a scholar of music, and in an attempt to understand the work on a deeper level. And the more you learn about this opera, the more interesting it becomes. What intrigues me most about Zalame is that this is an opera imbued with layer upon layer of cultural references, ideological symbolism, musical tension, and interpretive contradictions. And in order to understand this opera on a deeper level, we must confront the issues this opera represents and unpack all the different influences that collided in this work at the time of its premiere. So this lecture is going to focus on an understanding and analysis of Zalame from five different angles the construction of the story, the historical context, musical analysis, philosophies of power and gaze, and elements of the production that you will see and hear when you go to see a performance of it. So we start with the construction of the story. The plot of Strauss's opera is based on the historical figure of Zalame, or in English we say Salome, whose existence is documented several times across different sources from antiquity. Her story is told twice in the Bible, and details are given about her in Book 18 of Jewish Antiquities, an early encyclopedia-like documentation of Jewish history created circa 94 AD. She is also mentioned in letters exchanged between Herod and Pontius Pilate, which have survived in what we call the Syriac manuscripts, and archaeologists have identified her as the figure on several ancient coins from the time period. Zalame's fame comes mostly from being the catalyst in the death of prophet John the Baptist by dancing before Herod and requesting the head of John the Baptist on a silver platter as her reward. Both biblical accounts of the story are fairly short and give very little details to elaborate on the event. This is the count of Zalame as given in the New Testament in the book of Mark, chapter 6, verses 17 through 29. Quote, for Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. 
but she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, Ask me for anything you want, and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, Whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, What should I ask for? The head of John the Baptist on a platter, she answered. At once the girl hurried into the king with the request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. End quote. So you see that in the biblical account of the story, we are not given very many details, and the story is fairly matter-of-fact, describing the events. Any details regarding the dance or a backstory about the relationship between Salome and John are non-existent. We are given the impression that it is Salome's mother, Herodias, who is interested in getting the head as revenge. And in the account of Zalame's life in Jewish antiquities, we learn that Zalame lived into her late 40s at least, if not her late 50s, raised several children over the course of two marriages. But the plot of the opera elaborates on the facts quite a bit and strays in its historical accuracy. Based on the play Zalome by Oscar Wilde, the plot of the opera goes something like this. The opera opens with the slave Nariboth gazing at the moon and telling us that the Princess Zalame looks beautiful tonight, immediately focusing us on her physical beauty before we even meet her. He is in love with Zalame, and as the page chastises him for obsessing over her, he says that no good could possibly come from this. Then we hear the voice of Yohanahan, John the Baptist, coming from the cistern. Zalame then appears on stage. She is fleeing Herod's feast, and the voice of Yohanahan has caught her attention. Zalame realizes that Yohanahan is cursing her mother, Herodias, for sleeping with her husband's brother, which is what the beginning of the biblical passage described. This piques Zalame's curiosity, and she persistently asks the guards to bring Yohanahan up out of the cistern so she can speak to him. The guards refuse since Herod has given strict orders that no one is supposed to speak with him. 
Zalame then turns her attention to Naraboth, seductively asking him to fulfill her request. Naraboth caves and orders Yohanahan to be brought out of the cistern. Yohanahan continues to shout curses about Herod and Herodias, but as soon as Zalame sees him, she is filled with an overwhelming sense of desire and begins gushing over his physical appearance. She asks to touch Yohanahan's skin, and he refuses. Then she asks to touch his hair, and he refuses again. Then she asks him to kiss her, and he refuses her a third time. Seeing Zalame so taken with Yohanahan, Naraboth is overcome with jealousy, and unable to stand it anymore, he kills himself. Having rejected to even look at Zalame, Yohanahan is returned to the cistern and continues shouting his prophecies. Then Herod and Herodias appear, and Herod gazes lustfully at Zalame. Herodias chastises Herod for looking at Zalame so much. And Zalame rejects his gaze. She has no interest in Herod. She is consumed with thoughts of Yohanahan. After listening to a conversation among a group of Jewish men about the nature of God, Herod gets up and approaches Zalame, asking her to dance for him. Tant für mich, Zalame, Herod says. Herodias objects, of course, and Zalame rejects him as well. She is still fuming about Yohanahan's rejection of her. Then Herod promises to grant her whatever her heart desires, even half his kingdom, if she will just dance for him. He swears this in an oath to her in front of all of his guests, and Zalame agrees. Then we have the infamous Dance of the Seven Veils, a purely orchestral section designed to be the most seductive and alluring music ever written, ending with Zalame naked at Herod's feet.
When Herod asks Zalame what she wants as a reward, Zalame demands the head of Yohanahan brought to her on a silver platter. Herod resists, offering her peacocks, rare jewels, and even the veil in the temple. But Zalame refuses, and three times she demands the head of Yohanahan. Herod is forced to grant her request, and when she receives the head, she passionately declares her love for Yohanahan and kisses his decapitated head. Terrified, Herod orders his soldiers to man tuta desis vipe, kill that woman. Man tuta desis vipe. And the curtain falls as Zalame is crushed to death by the soldiers' swords. So by this point you may be wondering, 
What is the motivation behind elaborating on a story the way that Oscar Wilde did? How did the biblical story of Zalame go from requesting the head of John the Baptist to please her mother to Wilde's version where Zalame is falling in love with him, asking him to kiss her, and John refusing to look at her, and Zalame basically seducing Herod in order to get her own mixture of revenge and pleasure by demanding John's execution and kissing his decapitated head. And then in a historically inaccurate plot twist, Herod is shocked and afraid of the sexual monster that Zalame has become. He orders his soldiers to kill her, and the curtain falls on her being crushed to death. So how did the story become so twisted, and how was something so shocking actually a big success? To understand the appeal of Zalame to early audiences, as well as the danger that she symbolized, we need to understand more about what was going on at this point in history, the defining characteristics of art and culture of the time, and the tumultuous gender politics associated with this period, which brings us to the historical context of the work. Zalame premiered in Dresden, Germany in 1905, which lands it squarely within the turn of the century time period, an era in art and culture known as the fin de siècle. Before the turn of the 20th century, there were several extremely important movements and cultural figures that informed the fin de siècle landscape. The Industrial Revolution that began in the mid-1700s had more or less reached maturity in the mid-1800s, forever changing the economy of the Western world by introducing a sustainable middle-class population and a more capitalist approach to industry and trade. Once a middle class was firmly established, it was possible and very desirable for those born into a lower class of society to work their way into the middle class, and from there, come as close as possible to the level of aristocracy. And the activity of bettering oneself, whether it be through business savvy and hard work in the male arena, or marriage in the female arena, became a driving force of the new middle class bourgeois. In order to transform oneself from the lower working class into a middle class, and ultimately the highest level of respected bourgeois society, one had to mimic the aristocracy in every possible way. For women, this meant staying on top of the latest fashion trends, putting the utmost care into one's appearance and learning the skills of aristocratic women, while simultaneously exuding a chaste, virginal, and modest grace at all times, befitting a woman of noble stature. Throughout the mid and latter 19th century, as men elevated their wives into this state of proper etiquette, synonymous with sexlessness, there was a surge in prostitution throughout Europe. The latter half of the 19th century began with the Second Industrial Revolution, or the Technological Revolution, roughly spanning from the 1860s to about 1914-1915. Unlike the First Industrial Revolution, which changed the agriculture, mining, transportation and manufacturing industries, the Technological Revolution defines a period of unprecedented growth in scientific innovations and the use of new technologies. This was the era where electricity, telegraphs, radios, motor power, steam and combustion engines and automobiles were becoming more and more a part of everyday life. While all this change was taking place through the 19th century, another very important kind of revolution was happening throughout Europe and North America, a slow and steady revolution in the realm of women's rights. By the end of the 1800s, in many countries across the Western world, women had won the right to control their own inheritance and wages. They could actually own a business. They could initiate a divorce. 
they could have legal custody of their children, they could join several different trade unions, and they were even allowed to pursue post-secondary education in many countries across Europe. And perhaps not so coincidentally, as women began to fight for more and more freedom within what was a very patriarchal society, there was also an explosion of philosophical and scientific writing focused on gender, as well as the evolution of the female and male mind and theories of sexuality that perpetually targeted women as the weaker gender. In 1859, the English scientist Charles Darwin published On the Origin of the Species, and by the early 1870s, Darwin's ideas of evolution had been widely accepted as scientific fact. Not only did Darwin's theories provide the facade of a scientific proof that the male gender was superior to the female gender, his theories also suggested that a species as a, whole, as a whole could become either more advanced or degenerate through the process of evolution. When these two ideas were combined, other philosophers and scientists began to view women as the dangerous, weaker gender through which some kind of degeneration was imminent. Women were seen as a hindrance to the smooth unfolding of evolutionary progress, ready at any moment to lure men back to a sham paradise of erotic materiality. To protect the male's continued evolution, there came a flood of scholars, philosophers, and scientists dedicated to exploring, understanding, and scientifically proving and warning the male genders of the evils sought or lying beneath the surface of women. The man most well-known for his research in this area was Austrian psychologist Sigmund Freud. In 1895, Freud published Studies in Hysteria, and then in 1899 on the Interpretation of Dreams, and in 1905, three essays on the theory of sexuality. In Freud's work, females were once again targeted as psychologically unstable, and for Freud, this instability was directly tied to female sexuality. In addition to Sigmund Freud, in 1903, Austrian philosopher Otto Weininger published a massive book titled Sex and Character, within which he attempted to cast new light on the issues of female sexuality. In his writing, Weininger argues that people, all people, are composed of a mixture of both male and female substances, with the aspects of male substances being active, productive, conscious, moral, and logical, and the aspects of female substances being passive, unproductive, unconscious, amoral, and alogical. He also argues that female life is consumed with the sexual function, both with the act, in which case he, she must be a prostitute, and the product of the act, being a mother. In contrast, he says that the male life is consumed by the desire to become a genius and to forego sexuality for an abstract love of the absolute God, which he finds or perceives within himself. Weininger also addressed the issue of prostitution and concluded that prostitution was ultimately the natural outlet for any woman whose depravity was so strong that she could not be tamed through acculturation and thus dedicated her time to seducing helpless middle-class men. As a result, chaste and virginal women were associated with the upper class with evolutionary progress as women who were able to suppress and control their innately immoral natures, and any kind of sexual freedom displayed by the female gender became associated with immaturity, inferiority, sometimes insanity, and ultimately a degradation of human evolution. 
All of these cultural influences collided at the end of the 1800s and the beginning of the 1900s into a fundamentally misogynist mindset, and women were viewed as fragile, inferior, and dangerous creatures who inflicted their unwieldy, seductive, and destructive sexuality upon men. Emerging from this discourse, one trait that strongly marks fin de siècle culture is the obsession in artistic works with extreme and decadent portrayals of this dangerous, untamed female sexuality and the stories of men who became martyrs for the cause of morality at the hands of these perverse women. As a biblical character, there are many paintings of Zalame long before the fin de siècle obsession with her occurs. Andrea Solario's Zalame with the Head of John the Baptist was painted circa 1506, as well as another depiction of her by Vicelli. These are two Renaissance-era examples of a Zalame painting, but the Zalame craze was very different than the Renaissance version of this character. In the Renaissance paintings, the eye is drawn to either the beauty of Zalame's face or the gruesome element of the decapitated head of John the Baptist. Whereas, in the fin de siècle paintings of Zalame and writing about Zalame from this time, the focus is very strongly on Zalame's body and tended to highly eroticize and orientalize her in appearance. And when I say that there was a Zalame craze, I really mean that there was a Zalame craze. In 1865, Pierre Bonneau's Zalame was one of the first highly sexualized and orientalized depictions of her character. Several very famous paintings followed this, as well as writing. In 1877, the French writer Gustave Flaubert, who is most famous for his novel Madame Bovary, published a work called Three Tales, in which tale number two was entitled Herodias and was based on the story of Zalame's mother, with a lush and very detailed description of Zalame's Dance of the Seven Veils. One of the most famous painters of Zalame's character is Gustave Moreau, who, in 1874, revealed a painting titled Zalame Dancing Before Herod, and then painted her again in 1876 in a work titled The Apparition. The list goes on with different paintings that followed, and different works, ballets, writing, all the way up until 1893, when we have the extremely important landmark in the Zalame craze, Oscar Wilde's play titled Zalame, is published in French, with an English translation of the play released in 1894, with now-famous illustrations by Audrey Beardsley. The stage premiere of the original version took place in Paris in 1896, and soon afterward, actress Maud Allen created a famous adaptation of the play. Then, in 1905, we see a German translation or translated performance of Wilde's Zalame, which Richard Strauss gets a hold of, and then composes the opera Zalame, and it is premiered in Dresden to wild success. Following the opera, there are several more paintings that are made of her by different artists across Europe, many more works follow, and the craze continues until about 1914, when political tensions in Europe start diverting everyone's attention from Zalame and more towards the fate of the continent in the First World War. Now that we've talked about the historical source material, as well as the cultural context for the work, let's turn our attention to talking about the music. When Richard Strauss began composing Zalame, he was emerging from a period of intense orchestral writing. He had just finished creating a stream of symphonic tone poems, many of which are still famous today, including Don Juan, Don Quixote, 
and also Sprach Zarathustra, which I think you will all recognize. By the time Strauss began composing Zalame, he was bringing with him a new kind of orchestral understanding and compositional style. One of the most influential composers for Strauss was Richard Wagner, who introduced a more chromatic style of operatic writing. One of the hallmarks of Strauss's Zalame score is that he toys with the chromaticism even more strongly than Wagner ever did, and avoids any sense of structured melodies in the vocal parts to the point that the listener's expectations are not only thwarted, but completely undermined and overwhelmed. At more than one place in the score, the music is divided against itself in what we call a very polytonal manner, with the orchestra playing in one key while the singer's music thrashes against it in a very different key. Strauss then starkly juxtaposes moments of extreme chromaticism and polytonality with moments of diatonicism, making the difference between the two tonal languages all the more jarring. In one moment, the harmonies can be rich and beautiful, and in the next moment, the music can become violent and chaotic. Another revolutionary aspect of Zalame was the way in which Strauss writes for the orchestra. The orchestra for the opera employs over 100 players, including an expanded first and second violin section, a 15-piece brass section, and some new and non-existent traditional keyboard instruments, such as the celesta, harmonium, and the organ. This was an orchestra designed for maximum power, and singers must have extremely powerful voices to be able to be heard over top of them. As Strauss said to the orchestra during a rehearsal of Zalame in Prague, quote, That is too gentle! We want wild beasts here! This is not civilized music, it is music that must crash! End quote. Strauss was intentionally trying to create music that embodied all the violent, grotesque, and decadent themes of the fin de siècle culture, and he was intentionally pushing the boundaries of musical volume and style. In addition to these overarching stylistic elements, Zalame is considered a work of genius in its use of leitmotif, a musical concept that Strauss picked up from Wagner. 
In Zalame, every character has their own motif or musical theme, in addition to several more conceptual or thematic motifs. There are several light motifs associated with Zalame, but there is a main motif associated with her person, which is important to listen for, as it returns again and again and again throughout the opera in various expanded and elaborated forms. Isolated on its own, this is what Zalame's light motif sounds like. We immediately hear Zalame's motif following the opening scale in the clarinet, the first few moments of the work. And then we hear this over and over again throughout the whole opera. Another motif strongly associated with Zalame is what we call the obsession motif, and it sounds like this. Yohanahan also has a motif, and the tonal structure of his motif contrasts very strongly with Zalame's. Where Zalame's motif is very chromatic, very small steps, the smallest possible steps between pitches, Yohanahan's motif is strictly diatonic, capturing his very stoic character. Another important motif associated with Yohanahan is the prophecy motif, which can be heard as Yohanahan repeatedly curses Herod and Herodias. It sounds like this. Lastly, as Zalame becomes more and more determined to kiss Yohanahan, the kiss motif is brought to the forefront of the texture and can be heard most clearly whenever she sings Ich will dein Mund küssen, Yohanahan. I will kiss your lips, Yohanahan. In addition to the embedded fabric of leitmotifs, another important musical element in Zalame is the way in which specific harmonic changes in tonal structure within the opera mirror relationship dynamics and conflicts within the story. Generally speaking, the two main characters that are connected through tonal structure are our title character, Zalame, and the object of her desire. Yohanahan is assigned the key of purity, C major. 
The first and last time we hear Yohanahan sing in the opera, his music is in C major. And Zalame's key is very much C-sharp major, a key that has historically been associated with the exotic other, mysticism, and sensuality. The harmonic relationship between C and C-sharp is both interesting and odd. These two musical keys, and the characters associated with them, are simultaneously fundamental opposites, as well as completions of one another. They share no common tonal ground, no common pitches, and as a result, each character fills the tonal void that the other lacks. Since Zalame is treated in this time period as a trope representing the dangerous sexuality of the female, she cannot exist in the same key signature as Johannahan. In addition to this C-C-sharp dichotomy, Strauss heightens the juxtaposition of purity versus sensuality by ensuring that all of Johannahan's music is very major, diatonic sounding, with austere melodic lines and cadences that always resolve, while Zalame's music is much more chromatic and ornamental, rarely resolving or giving us a sense of closure. The C C-sharp symbolism is dramatically played out in the last scene of the opera. This last scene begins with a huge outburst as the executioner appears with the severed head. The orchestra screams out a theme from the opening bars of the opera as Zalame greets her prize in ecstasy. Zalame gradually draws the orchestra into the tonality of C-sharp major, C-sharp minor, showing the strength of her will through this shift. When she finally kisses Johannahan's mouth, there is a fierce cadence in C-sharp major. Herod then commands his soldiers to kill her, and the music snaps back into C as the soldiers rush towards her. But even as the curtain is about to close on Zalame's death, we hear a C major chord blotting out her physical and her tonal existence. The rhythm of the chord is all Zalame, and it is the rhythm of her motive that brings down the curtain. With these layers of musical and historical and cultural context in mind, we're now going to talk about philosophies of power and gaze that we need to confront in the opera. Between 1930 and 1970, there was a very influential philosopher named Jacques Lacan who wrote about a concept that he called the gaze. The gaze describes the relationship between a subject or person who wants to look and an object or person who is aware that they are being looked at. The gaze can be motivated by the subject's desire to control the object it sees, and the object can likewise capture and hold the subject's gaze. Philosopher Michel Foucault later elaborated on Lacan's idea of the gaze and how it is used in constructions of power. And this idea of the gaze has been applied quite a bit in research on Strauss's Zalame because the opera is such an interesting case study in the dynamics of the gaze and the power dynamics that emerge between the characters when you start considering these different moments of looking. The first lines that we hear in the opera is Naraboth telling us that Princess Zalame looks beautiful tonight. He is the subject, and Zalame is the object of his gaze. Zalame, aware that she is being looked at, uses her objectification by Naraboth to convince him to bring Yohanahan out of the cistern by promising him that she will, at some point in the future, gaze favorably upon him. Why does Zalame want Yohanahan out of the cistern? So that she can look at him. 
Zalame becomes a subject, desiring Yohanahan, the object of her gaze. Zalame then asks Yohanahan to look at her, because a returned gaze from him means that she will be fulfilled in her own desires, and also that there's a mutual desire felt between them. If Yohanahan desires Zalame, she will become the object of his gaze, and in Zalame's experience, when she is an object of a gaze, she is able to control her subject. But Yohanahan refuses to look at her. He refuses to fulfill her desires. He refuses to return her affection, ultimately denying her any kind of power over him. Meanwhile, who is looking at Zalame instead? Herod. Herod becomes a subject, gazing at Zalame as the object of his desire. When Zalame becomes aware that she is the object of Herod's gaze, she uses the power that it gives her against him in order to get the head of Yohanahan on a platter. And then, once she has Yohanahan's head, she forces his dead eyes to look at her. Being the object of a gaze can be degrading or subjugating because one doesn't always have a choice when they're being looked at. In Oscar Wilde's play and in Strauss's opera, Zalame can be seen as a commodity, an object within some kind of sexual economy. But she is also in control of this status and sets the terms of her own exchange. When the object knows that they are being looked at, then receiving the gaze can be empowering because it can then be used as a mechanism of control or a way of gaining power over the person who's looking at you. This is exactly what happens to Zalame. She is empowered by all the male gaze. As we saw in the survey of historical context around the opera, the ideal woman at this point in history was asexual, passive, and suppressed all sexual desires. But Zalame's character is none of these things. She is cunning. She is smart. She has a real burning desire for Yohanahan, and she uses her sexuality to get what she wants. For this reason, Zalame can be read as an empowering character, but she is also portrayed as a murderer, and her sexuality is seen as a dangerous thing, a lethal weapon. And what happens with this empowered Zalame? Herod has her murdered as the curtain falls. In this way, the opera can be read as a fundamentally misogynist work, and many critics have called it the vehicle through which the male artist is working through larger cultural anxieties about the increasing political, sexual, and social freedoms available to Western women at this time period. Now let's talk about the production for a moment. The role of Zalame itself is incredibly difficult to sing, the soprano needs to have the power and range of a Wagnerian singer and the ability to display incredible emotional vulnerability as Zalame's character lays every ounce of anger, hurt, curiosity, and desire completely bare for the audience to see. In addition to vocal ability and emotional intensity, the soprano singing Zalame needs to somehow be seen as both an object and a subject of the gaze. She needs to be fragile at times, but then empowered at other times. She needs to be played as both the fundamental opposite of Yohanahan, John the Baptist, as well as inextricably linked to him. And on top of that, the soprano singing this role needs to be convincing as a teenage girl going through some kind of sexual awakening. At the Met this season, we had a last-minute substitution of a new soprano cast to sing Zalame, Patricia Reset. 
In a review of Opening Night published in the New York Classical Review, this was how her performance was described. Quote, It is one of the defining features of live performance that it continues to surprise us. To be an informed listener and attend a concert or an opera without expectations is just about impossible, and those experiences that shatter expectations are often the most rewarding. Patricia Rossette provided just that kind of rare experience, starring in a revival of Richard Strauss's Zalame at the Metropolitan Opera. She was not even originally scheduled to sing in this run and stepped in to replace an ailing Catherine Nagelstad. Yet the veteran soprano had a career night Monday, showing that she still has an enormous amount to offer, both musically and dramatically, as an artist. Rosette has not had a success at the Met like this in several years, maybe ever. Rosette quickly settled into a secure, penetrating soprano. Zalame is not the sort of role that requires vocal perfection. It requires dramatic conviction, captivating presence, and a raw, visceral vocal power, all of which she had in spades. Her harrowing intensity and consistently direct singing were a service to Strauss's work and made this a heart-racing performance to watch. Zalame is not an easy arc to portray. The dramatic action of the opera takes place in a relatively short time, but even so, her journey to psychotic breakdown, fueled first by her rejection at the hands of Johanna Hahn and then by her stepfather's lecherous abuse, is a long one and requires constant focus. Rosette maintained formidable presence throughout and was riveting from first to last. Her performance of the famous Dance of the Seven Veils was itself a dramatic feat, elegantly styled and fluently choreographed by Doug Verone, pulsing with eroticism. That strain of the erotic only magnified the deep pathos of the final scene. Salome's monologue, as she caresses the head of the prophet, who spurned her, is a Liebestode of sorts, inviting death through dark, amorous obsession. Rosette's account was exquisitely crafted, terrifying as she exulted in her grim triumph. Even in these last moments, the bright power of her voice showed no signs of fatigue, and her glimpses of rapture elicited a particular kind of horror. We saw, even in the darkest instant, a sad kind of innocence, a naive love that became a ruinous obsession. Those are the words of Eric C. Simpson writing for the New York Classical Review. Now to bring all of these discussions to a close, we are going to end our lecture today by listening to the last scene of the opera where many of these leitmotifs converge, and this is the harrowing scene where Zalame finally has the severed head before her. She carries out all of her desires and is then doomed to death by Herod. Ich habe ihn geküsst. Ich habe ihn geküsst. 
That was Naomi Baratera talking about Strauss's Zalame, which is on stage at the Met through December 28th. Our podcast returns on January 4th, 2017, with a new episode featuring Verdi's Nabucco. Until then, we wish everyone a safe and happy holiday. I'm Kyle Homewood. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. <laughs>